I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever been in an argument with someone where you believed yourself to be right? You were convinced that you were right and that the other person was wrong. But then at some point in the argument, you got to a place where you said, oh no, I'm wrong. And you knew it inside. And you had, to, you, had to come to a, you had to make a decision to make at that point. How were you going to respond to the fact that you realized you were wrong? It's funny because if I'm counseling someone else in that situation, it's easy. It's like, admit you're wrong. Humble yourself. Turn the corner. Repent. But if I'm in that situation, that's a little bit harder to, it's a little bit harder to follow that advice, that counsel. There comes a point where you've got to be willing to swallow your pride, humble yourself, and do the right thing. The question is, how do we respond in those situations? And the reason I bring this up is because this morning we are turning to the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, we are going to see six arguments or disputes between the Lord and his people. And we're going to see how they were called to respond to these arguments. We have been studying the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And what we see in the scriptures is that the minor prophets in the Old Testament cover about a 300-year period. They covered about a 300-year period from roughly 760 B.C. to 460 B.C., And Malachi is the last of them. He is the last of the minor prophets, and Malachi is indeed the last book of the Old Testament. And the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and then there's 400 years of what we refer to as silence, 400 years of silence before the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark. So this coming week represents for us 400 years of silence. So just prepare yourself for a very long week. But this morning we're looking at Malachi. And Malachi did his work, did his ministry about 80 or so years after many of the Israelites returned to Jerusalem from exile. Now the exile was a significant event in the history of Israel. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. They were God's people who were called to live faithfully as his people and to worship him and him alone and to walk in obedience to his good commands. But repeatedly they disobeyed the Lord. Repeatedly they worshiped false gods. Repeatedly they walked in rebellion to the Lord. The Lord warned them through his prophets to repent. He called them to repentance, to turn away from their sin, to turn away from worshiping false gods and to worship him and him alone. But they, by and large, rejected these warnings And because of that, the Lord punished them. The Lord brought judgment. He brought judgment in the form of destruction and exile, meaning a foreign army invaded, people were conquered, and they were taken away from their homeland into exile. And the people of Judah were brought into exile by the Assyrians in about 587 B.C. But the Lord, who was merciful to them, allowed them to return, many of them to return to Jerusalem, about 538 or 539 B.C. And they had been there for about 80 years when Malachi appeared on the scene. They had returned from exile and had been back for about 80 years. The people had returned. The temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt. 
but things were not going well for the Israelite community in Jerusalem. Though the temple had been rebuilt, the glory of the Lord had not filled the temple as it previously had. The people were facing economic hardship and they were still living under foreign rule. They were not living the lives they had hoped that they would be living. And this was the setting whereby Malachi carried out his ministry. And one of the things we need to understand in order to understand the book of Malachi is the backdrop of the covenant. The Lord had entered into a covenant relationship with his people based on his steadfast love for them. We read about this in the first five books of the Bible, in particular the book of Exodus. We see how the Lord chose the people of Israel and committed himself to them in a promised relationship. And he, and he promised to love them and to bless them. And he called them to worship him and him alone. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he called them to be fully devoted to him. And he gave them a good law, good laws, good commands that they were to, to obey. They were to walk in obedience to him. And as they walked in obedience to him, they would enjoy his presence and, and his blessing in their lives. Listen to what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So the Lord chose the people of Israel based on his love. It says, he, he, he says, I, I love you, I, I chose you, not because you were great, I loved you because I love you. The Lord says, I loved you because I chose to love you, and that's the best reason. The reason that's the best reason is because if he chose them based on something good in them, some good quality in them, what if that changed? What then would happen to his love? So his love for them was not based on some quality that they possessed that they could lose. His love was based on his love. It was based on himself. It was based on his own character and nature. He said, I love you. I chose you. You are to be my people, my treasured possession. And you are to walk in faithfulness and obedience to me. What a gift. What an extraordinary privilege to, to be the people of the Lord, to belong to the Lord, to be his treasured possession. And through this covenant, the Lord promised that Israel would be his special possession, Israel would be a kingdom of priests to God, that Israel would be, will be a holy nation. He promised to fight for Israel and overcome all her enemies, and he promised to treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgiveness of her sins. He promised to do all these good things for his people, and he commanded them to worship him and him alone, to be fully devoted to him, to walk in obedience to him. And sadly, the Israelites in Jerusalem during Malachi's time despised the covenant with the Lord like many of their ancestors. As many of their ancestors disobeyed the Lord and despised the covenant 
so did they. However, they did not seem to think that they were despising the Lord's covenant. They thought they were not in the wrong. They thought they were right. If anything, they thought the problem was with the Lord. It's not that they were failing to live up to the covenant. The problem was that the Lord was failing to bless them and to do what was good and right. And so what we see in the book of Malachi is a series of arguments or disputes between the Lord and his people. Let's begin by reading the first argument in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In the first dispute, the Lord reminds his people of his love for them, and the response of the people was cynical, if not accusatory. It was not an inquisitive help us understand type question. It was more of a defiant, oh really? You've loved us? How exactly? Their response was shocking. They questioned the love of the Lord who had chosen them, provided for them, defeated their enemies, and blessed them. They questioned the love of the Lord who was merciful to them in spite of their rebellion against him. In response to their question, the Lord reminded him of his election of them. He chose the descendants of Jacob, who were the people of Israel, and did not choose the descendants of Esau, who were the people of Edom. Moreover, the Lord punished the people of Edom because of the way they treated the people of Israel. You might remember this if you were here for Pastor Sam's sermon on Obadiah, who was also a minor prophet. Through Obadiah, the Lord condemned the Edomites because they failed to help the Israelites and instead sided with the enemies of the Israelites. In Obadiah verse 10, we read, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So in other words, the Lord condemned and judged the Edomites because of the way they treated the Lord's people. The Lord's saying, remember, I love you. If you don't believe me, then how come I oppose those who treated you poorly? I love you, and therefore I am against your enemies. I am against those who mistreat you. I'm against those who oppose you. And this was a demonstration of the Lord's love. So the response of the people in Malachi's day to the Lord's declaration that he loved them revealed their lack of understanding and their lack of gratitude. They failed to understand what they deserved and failed to be grateful for what they received. They failed to understand that the only thing they deserved from the Lord was punishment and judgment and all the curses of the covenant. That's what they deserved. If the Lord only gave them what they deserved, they would be facing punishment, judgment, and all the curses of the covenant because they disobeyed the covenant. And the Lord warned them, if you disobey the covenant, here are the curses that you're going to face. They failed to understand what they deserved and they failed to understand what they had received. Instead of receiving all that they deserved, the Lord was gracious and merciful and kind to them, even bringing them back from exile to the city of Jerusalem empowering and enabling them to rebuild the temple in their city. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to guard our hearts against this kind of cynicism and lack of gratitude. We don't want to be guilty of this sort of thing. We don't want to be guilty of cynicism and complaining against the Lord. We don't want to be guilty of lack of gratitude. We need to understand what we deserve. And we need to be grateful for what we have received. If the Lord were to give us what we deserve, we would get hell. That is what we deserve. We deserve to be punished to be eternally separated from God. But God in his mercy and his kindness has given us what we don't deserve. He has given us his extraordinary, amazing, and precious love. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we read, Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We have been given the amazing and extraordinary love of God. And therefore, we need to be a people who are grateful, who are profoundly grateful to the Lord and what he has given us in spite of what we deserve. You see, the right response to the love of the Lord is full devotion and sincere worship from a grateful heart. And sadly, we're going to see in the following disputes that the Israelites in Malachi's day failed to be fully devoted to the Lord and they failed to worship him with sincere hearts. Let's keep reading. Chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. In the second dispute, the Lord turned the tables on the Israelites. After all, they should not be the ones questioning his love for them. Rather, their love for him was what needed to be questioned. The sin of all the people in their failure to rightly worship the Lord was exposed here. But Malachi took aim in particular at the priests who were allowing and enabling the sin. Through Malachi, the Lord confronted the priest and said, Why do you fail to honor me as your father and fail to fear me as your master? He said, You have despised my name. In other words, he was saying, You don't value me. You don't esteem me. You don't have a desire to bring glory to my name, to make much of me. Instead of making much of me and bringing honor to my name, you despise my name. And the priest retorted, How? How have we despised your name? As though they believed they had done nothing wrong. But what they were doing wrong was obvious. They were blatantly breaking the law that the Lord had given them by offering improper sacrifices. He said, your sacrifices, he said, for your sacrifices, you are offering animals that are blind, lame, and sick. In Leviticus chapter 22, the Lord explicitly forbid the Israelites from offering an animal with any blemish as a sacrifice. He said, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. It was explicitly forbidden in the law. They were to offer good sacrifices. They weren't to give the Lord their leftovers, so to speak. Moreover, this kind of offering would not even be acceptable to a local government official. He said, how will it work out for you if you offer that sickly animal to your governor? Do you think he's going to appreciate that gift? Do you think that will go well for you? If your local government official would not receive that animal as an acceptable gift, then why in the world do you think it's acceptable to the Lord of hosts? He was saying, I am a great king. My name is going to be praised and feared among all the nations. Why then do you think it's okay to offer me that garbage? Why do you think I'm honored and glorified when you bring me that kind of offering? You're not honoring me. You are despising me. Lord is saying, I deserve your best, and you are giving me your worst. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I am the King of kings, the Lord of lords? Don't you know that I will be praised among all the nations and peoples of the earth? then why do you think it's okay to give me something that your local government official would not even want? The sickly and pathetic animals that the people were offering and the priests were accepting revealed the sin in their hearts. They did not desire to honor and bring glory to the Lord. So the Lord said, I wish you would just stop. Don't bother. Don't come to the temple. Don't offer these kind of sacrifices. Your worship is in vain. It's better for you to stop offering these sacrifices and worshiping me 
It's better for you to stop than to continue doing what you are doing. Friends, the Lord does not accept half-hearted devotion. He is not pleased with apathy and worship. He does not want our leftovers. If we think we can appease God by throwing him a bone every once in a while, we are gravely mistaken. We must seek to truly honor him and bring glory to his name. And when we understand his love, we will eagerly do so. The Lord had entered into a covenant relationship with his people based on his steadfast love and required them to be fully devoted to him. But the apathy of the Lord's people in worship revealed that their hearts were far from the Lord. The people and the priests despised the covenant with the Lord. Again, Malachi took particular aim at the priests because they had a special role in the covenant community. They had the joy and privilege of instructing people in the law of the Lord. They had the joy and privilege of teaching people the good commands of the Lord and helping them to walk in a way that was faithful to the Lord. They had the joy of leading people in the paths of righteousness so they could enjoy the Lord's blessing in their lives. But instead of leading people in the path of righteousness through faithfully instructing them in the law of the Lord, they were failing to do so. They were leading people astray. They were failing to build the people up through the faithful teaching of the word. They were doing more harm than good. God's people need God's word to be taught faithfully. This is why the faithful teaching of God's word is central to our times of worship together as a church family. When we gather as a church family, we read God's word. We pray God's word. We sing God's word. We preach and teach God's word. And what you are doing right now is exceedingly important. What you are doing is sitting under the teaching of God's word. You are taking the posture of learning that you might hear God's word and apply God's word and walk in a path of righteousness. The preachers are not important. What is important is the word that is being preached. And that is why Pastor Sam always says, move him out of the way that your word may be preached. We all need God's word. We all need to sit under the teaching of God's word. We all need to take a posture of submission to God's word. That is one of the reasons why it's good we have multiple people who preach. Because every single one of us needs to take that posture of sitting under the teaching of God's word, including those who preach and teach God's word. We need God's word. We need to sit under the teaching of God's word so that we might walk in the paths of righteousness. Sadly, the people in Malachi's day, the priests in Malachi's day, were failing to instruct people according to God's word. And therefore, the people were worse off because of their instruction. But the Lord wasn't done calling out the sin of his people through his prophet Malachi. So let's keep reading chapter 2 verse 10 through verse 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. In this dispute, the Lord called out two significant problems within the covenant community regarding marriage and divorce. First of all, many were guilty of marrying into families who worshiped false gods, specifically Men were marrying foreign women who, who worshipped all kinds of false gods. It was not a race problem. It was a religion problem. The problem was they were marrying women who worshipped false gods, and the Lord warned them that if you do this, you will be led astray, and you too will worship false gods. And so the Lord condemned them for doing this. He condemned them for marrying foreign women, worshipping false gods, and then coming and trying to bring an offering to the Lord. He was, he was condemning them for their syncretism, trying to incorporate the worship of all kinds of false gods. The Lord had warned them that if they marry into families outside of the covenant community who do not worship Yahweh, then they would be led astray. And that is what was happening. The second problem in the covenant community was the men were divorcing the wives of their youth. The Lord described marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman. He did not describe it as a contract. He described a marriage as a relationship based on a promise to always be faithful to one another. But many of the men were acting as though they could just opt out of their marriages, which betrays the reality that marriage is a covenant. God is the author of marriage. He is the creator of marriage. He created marriage. He instituted marriage to be a covenant relationship between one man and one woman, whereby they would be faithful to each other as long as they lived. And he created marriage to be procreative as well. That the man and woman would have children, godly offspring who would worship the Lord. Marriage is a good gift from the Lord. But the people in Malachi's day were profaning this covenant relationship. They were divorcing. They were acting as though they could just opt out of their marriages. The Lord called these faithless men who were divorcing their wives to repent for their behavior which was causing destruction to families and the community. Let's move on to the next argument in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The problem of the evil man prospering was alive and well in the days of Malachi. Unfortunately, the people 
of Israel in Malachi's day were not able to view this supposed problem through the eyes of faith. In the fourth dispute, the prophet began by accusing the people of wearying the Lord with their cynical complaints. The people said things to the effect of, the evil man prospers, and therefore the Lord must be blessing him and delighting in him. So what's the point of obeying his commands and living a righteous life? And they said things like, where is the God of justice? And when they said this, they were essentially doubting his existence. They were saying, we see injustices going unpunished. So where is the supposed God of justice who promises to punish the guilty? They were doubting the Lord. They were complaining and grumbling against him because of what they saw right in front of them. Moreover, the prophet Haggai had gotten the people's hopes up regarding the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. Eighty or so years before Malachi, Haggai proclaimed, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the people had hoped that the glory of the Lord would appear at the temple in a profound way, bringing all kinds of blessings, but they weren't seeing this. They weren't seeing this, and they were disappointed with their lives. Instead, they were facing economic difficulty and hardship. Instead, they were seeing the wicked prosper. They were not seeing the things they wanted. They were disappointed with the reality of their lives. And the Lord responded by telling them what he was going to do. The Lord promised to send his messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord warned them that though you delight in the coming of the Lord's messenger, perhaps you shouldn't. They wanted the Lord come. They wanted the Lord's messenger to come. They thought they would be vindicated. They thought it would be all good for them. The Lord is saying when he comes, he's going to refine and bring judgment. And that might not go so well for you. The messenger would come like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap to purify and cleanse. And the subject of the refining fire would be the Lord's people. However, those who were not purified through repentance would face judgment. So the wicked would not ultimately prosper, and the Lord would bring about justice, but that would not be good news for the cynical, apathetic complainers of Malachi's day. They believed a lie. They believed that the Lord was blessing the wicked, he was turning a blind eye to injustice, that he didn't care, perhaps didn't even exist. They were believing a lie based on their immediate circumstances and because they believed a lie they complained and grumbled against the Lord they failed to wait patiently for the Lord to accomplish his good purposes and brothers and sisters we need to wait patiently for the Lord sometimes it seems as though evil is prevailing sometimes it seems as though the wicked are prospering sometimes it seems as though injustice is going unpunished but the day of the Lord will come Judgment will come. The Lord will one day make things right. And we need to wait patiently for the Lord, trusting in Him, trusting that He will accomplish His purposes and that He will always do what is good and right. Let's move on to the next dispute in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the cursed, for you are robbing me, 
the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord said, I do not change, reminding us that his character and eternal purposes never change. We refer to this as the immutability of God. God is immutable. He does not change. He is not progressing. He is not evolving. He is not developing. He is not maturing. He is the same. He is who he is yesterday, today, and forever. And this is obviously a good thing. The immutability of God provides a solid foundation for our faith. We don't have to worry if God's going to change on us. We don't have to worry if the God who is faithful to his promises in the Old Testament is also going to be faithful to his, the promises he made to us. We don't have to worry because God does not change. It is good news for us, and this was also good news for the people in Malachi's day. The immutability of God was also the reason that the Israelites had not been consumed in judgment, even though they were wayward. God is good and faithful, and therefore the people were not consumed. Yet because of their waywardness, he called them to return to him here in the fifth dispute. He told them, return to me. And they said, how? How are we supposed to return to you? He said, stop robbing me. And they said, how? How are we robbing you? He said, in your tithes and contributions. Here we have another example of how the people were disregarding the law that the Lord had given them. They disobeyed his good commands. In the law... Of Moses, God had commanded the Israelites to give a tithe or one-tenth of their agricultural produce in recognition of the Lord's ownership of the promised land. And the contributions were portions of the animal sacrifices that were entitled to the priests. The Israelites were robbing God by failing to set apart what the Lord commanded them to set apart for him. They were keeping what rightly belonged to the Lord. They were failing to practice the tithe as the Lord instructed them. They were withholding from the Lord. Instead of giving him their first and their best, they were withholding. And this is why they were cursed. They were disobeying the commands of the covenant, and therefore they were experiencing the curses of the covenant. God warned them this would happen, and what he had warned them would happen was happening. But he gave them the opportunity to repent and return to, to him. He said, return to me, repent. And here's the thing, he said, I will bless you. He was eager to bless them. He was eager to pour out his blessing on them. He was eager to show them his favor and his kindness and his mercy. He said, return to me, do what you're commanded to do and test me and I will prove myself to you. He was just waiting for them to test him so that he could show himself to be faithful and generous and merciful and kind. God promised to graciously reverse the curse and bless them according to the covenant blessings because he is faithful and does not change. Brothers and sisters, we need to be faithful to the Lord too. We want to be a people who give him our first and our best. We want to be generous to the Lord in our giving. We did a sermon series in December, in December regarding generosity. 
and our call, our command to be a generous people. And the primary reason that we are called to be generous is to bring glory and honor to the name of the Lord. We give because he is worthy. He is worthy of our best. And when we give generously with eager and grateful hearts, we bring glory to his name. Let's continue on to the sixth and final dispute. In chapter 3, verse 13, verse chapter, uh, through chapter 4, verse 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. In this sixth and final dispute, the Lord once again accuses the people of speaking against him. He was referring to those who said it was vain to serve the Lord, and it was vain to mourn over their sin and, and walk in repentance. They believed it to be vain because the arrogant and evildoers were prospering. Therefore, there was no benefit to serving the Lord. Their attitude was, why should we serve the Lord when those who don't serve the Lord are enjoying the good life? They are enjoying the good life we are not, therefore, why even serve the Lord? What's the benefit? What is the point? It is vain. It is of no value. It is worthless. There is no point in serving the Lord. The Lord responded by contrasting the cynical complainers with the faithful remnant. The faithful remnant within the covenant community feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They feared the Lord. They esteemed his name. They desired to bring glory to his name. And therefore, they knew we, we must walk in obedience to him that his name might be honored. We must fear him because, because he is righteous and he does punish the wicked. The people who complained, the cynical complainers, they failed to fear the Lord. They had no desire to bring honor to his name and therefore they walked in disobedience. But those who feared his name, those who desired to bring glory to his name, walked in obedience to him. And the Lord promised to make a distinction between the cynical complainers and the faithful remnant. He said the faithful would be his treasured possession. On the other hand, the day of the Lord was coming, and that day will be a bad day for the wicked. On the day of the Lord, the wicked will face severe judgment, but for the faithful, it will be a day of celebration marked by healing and rejoicing. Malachi wanted his hearers to realize that the situation right in front of them was not the final word. The wicked may have been prospering in their day. Maybe the faithful were suffering in their day, but that was not the final word, and he was calling them to, to have the eyes of faith, 
to see things through the eyes of faith. Maybe the wicked were prospering, but that would not be the final word. That would not be what would happen on the final day. And maybe the faithful were suffering, but that would not be the final word. That would not be what would take place on the final day. He pointed to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord brings judgment for the wicked and brings hope for the repentant and faithful. He was urging them to live in light of the day of the Lord. Keep the day of the Lord in your mind. Keep your mind's eye on the day of the Lord and live here and now in light of the day of the Lord. Live your life here and now in light of what's coming. Because here's what's coming. Judgment for the wicked and great joy for the repentant and faithful. And therefore, he said, you hearers, live faithfully now. Stop being unfaithful to the Lord and his covenant. Stop being unfaithful to the Lord. Stop walking in disobedience. Live faithfully to the Lord in light of what is coming. And brothers and sisters, we too are called to live in light of the day of the Lord. With that in mind, let's read the conclusion in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. By urging the people to remember Moses and the statutes and rules given at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, he was urging the people to remember the covenant. The call to remember the covenant was a succinct summary of Malachi's prophetic ministry. He was saying, remember the covenant. Remember the Lord's love for you. Remember that the Lord chose you. Remember that he provided for you. Remember that he opposed your enemies. Remember the good commands and the good laws that he gave you. Remember that he promised to bless you if you walked in obedience to him. Remember that he said he was going to curse you if you walked in disobedience to him. Remember the covenant of the Lord. Remember the covenant. But he also pointed to the future once again. He spoke of the great and awesome day of the Lord. For the wicked, that would be a bad day. For the repentant and faithful, that will be a great and awesome day. He spoke again of the messenger who would come before the day of the Lord. But this time, he referred to him as Elijah the prophet. He said Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord to call the Lord's people to repentance to avoid utter destruction. And this is how the Old Testament ends. The people were left waiting for the messenger of the Lord who would come and prepare a way for him by calling people to repentance. After Malachi, there was 400 years of silence. And after 400 years of silence, the prophecy of Malachi concerning the messenger was fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus, and he did so by calling the people to repent. He called them to repentance and pointed them to Jesus. He came as the fulfillment of the messenger spoken of in Malachi. And because God's people repeatedly failed to keep the covenant, Jesus came to inaugurate a new and better covenant. He came to inaugurate a new and better covenant whereby he fulfilled 
the righteous requirements of the covenant on our behalf. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. He is the only one who perfectly obeyed God, who carried out the will of God. Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. And then he went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place. And he rose from the grave conquering death. And what that means for us is now everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of our sins and we receive credit for the perfect righteousness of Christ. His perfect righteous life that he lived for our sake is credited to us by faith. So now when we trust in Jesus for our salvation, God treats us as though we are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive the righteousness of Christ. We receive the gift of eternal life. Oh, what a Savior we have. And what a covenant we have entered into with our Lord. He is gracious. He is merciful. And His steadfast love for us endures forever. If you're not a Christian, our our greatest hope and desire for you is that you will turn from your sin and believe in Jesus and be saved. You are in need of forgiveness. You are in need of a Savior. And God in His mercy and His kindness has provided a Savior for you. When you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and you will be reconciled to God, your Father. And you will receive the extraordinary love of God. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you, repent, believe in Jesus, be saved. Jesus also spoke about the day of the Lord, which includes the final judgment. Jesus spoke about the final judgment to warn us, to prepare us. And he spoke of it in a similar way as we see in Malachi. On the one hand, it will be a very bad day. It will be a day of severe judgment for the wicked, for the unrepentant. But on the other hand, it will be a a, great, a day of great joy for the repentant and those who are faithful to the Lord. We are called to live our lives here and now in light of the day of the Lord. In light of what's coming, we are called to live our lives now in a way that we are faithful to the Lord. The Lord doesn't teach us about the end times in scriptures so that we can make charts and graphs and give predictions about dates and times. We are taught about the end times so that we will live faithfully here and now. We see this, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And here's what we read. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The end is at hand. The end is coming. Therefore, live your lives here and now in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. 
walk in repentance, pursue righteousness, live the faithful life that we just saw described in 1 Peter. Live your life in such a way that you are keeping your eye on the end, the great day of the Lord, knowing that judgment will come, but also eternal and glorious life for the repentant and faithful. Just as Malachi gave hope to his hearers regarding the future, we too are given great hope for the future. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, th- from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the great and glorious future that awaits us. We put our hope in the Lord. We look forward to the day of the Lord, and we live our lives now, walking in repentance, seeking to be faithful to the Lord, knowing what is coming. The Lord is good to us, and He loves us. Therefore, let us live our lives in a way that is faithful and pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that You reveal Yourself to us in Your Word. We thank you for the way that your word confronts us in our sin and calls us to repentance. We thank you for the way you graciously call us to return to you, to live our lives in a way that is faithful to you and pleasing to you, to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to your name. We pray that you will give us a desire to bring glory to your name. We pray that we will be a people who are fully devoted to you and who worship you with sincere and grateful hearts. We thank you for this, Lord, and we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.